0: What does the future of Antarang look like? How do you go from 200,000 to a million to 5 million, 10 million, whatever it is that you want to take it?
1: So we want to ensure that the, the number of young people who are not in education, employment, entrepreneurship or training is as close to a zero as possible. Right today it's at a 30% for India. 30%? 30% of India's youth are completely unproductive. They're not in education, employment or training.
0: Wow, 30? I did not think it would be 30 percent. Hey guys, welcome to the 22nd episode of the Indian Market Story. As you all know, we're here to tell you all the story of how India is going to reach a $5 trillion GDP. When I was born in 1995, we were at $500. Today, we're at $2,500 per capita. And by 2030, I hope that we're going to hit $5,000 per capita in GDP. Most importantly, though, any growth has to be inclusive. And that's why today we're very privileged to have Mrs. Priya Agarwal, um, the founder and director of Antarang Foundation. For those of you that don't know, um, Anthrang is an incredible organization that helps children from underprivileged backgrounds find and pursue the right career. And till date, they've helped 1,800 sorry, 185,000 children across a 1,000 schools in five states, uh, which is by any counts an incredible achievement. Um, Priya, thank you so much for joining us. We're really privileged to have you here today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation.
0: So um, I guess I've got to know you a little bit, but maybe for the benefit of our viewers, uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, studied, schooling, something so that people get to know about your journey?
1: Sure. So I um, grew up largely in Bangalore. Uh, My parents were both bankers. They worked in a nationalized bank. So very regular, middle class family with not much of a disposable income. But what was interesting about my uh, growing up, my brother and I, I have a younger brother, my, fa- my parents in whichever, because they were in a nationalized bank, we kept moving every three to four years. We, moved, we, we would move cities and move schools. And everywhere we would go, my father would look for the best school in that particular city and make sure that we were there. Um, in his opinion, right, one, the peer group uh, made for, actually accounted for a lot over there. And the second thing was a library membership so the one thing that i remember very clearly growing up was just the worlds that i was exposed to through books mm-hmm. and uh, the i guess the only indulgence that we were allowed my brother and i were was the library membership and you know sort of almost unlimited amount of books that we could borrow week on week to read so those are um, really fond memories that i have i graduated in science um more because i couldn't get into a private medical college I, my grades and the you know my entrance exam scores were not so good and uh, i couldn't get into a public uh, medical college and private medical college was just really really unaffordable then i came to bombay to do my masters in management more because uh, you know that was just like an established pathway you finish your yeah. graduation you do a post grad which is most typically an mba because that was seen as like the pathway to um, you know, a better future. So that's, that's the story of, you know, what I did till the time I entered my MBA. Yeah.
0: Uh MBA was SPGen, if I'm not mistaken, right. right? Yeah. Yes. And uh, I know from my mom who went to SP gen as well. Back then, it was, uh, it was really a much, much smaller institution than it is today. So what was your experience like with SVGen? And I believe after that, you had some experience with Harvard, uh, the Harvard Executive Program as well. So what was, what was your uh, education journey, particularly your MBA journey like? Uh,
1: you know, Varun, your mum would also attest to this. SVJN was very different. There was something quite special about the institution way back then, uh, even when, you know, concepts like ESG and social impact and all of that was relatively unknown. The dean at that time, Dr. Srikant, had come uh, back to India after a stint in the United States. He studied at Harvard himself and he believed that Growth and progress is never complete if it's not inclusive. So in some way, the seeds of making sure that you take everyone along when you're thinking about progress was sown, I guess, um, right at the time uh, when we were at SPGN. Um, You know, summer, the whole summer project thing, everyone was like sort of hankering after going to the best places. You wanted mm-hmm. to get into the McKinsey's of the world for your summer project. And. One I was unsure about MBA. I really didn't enjoy it. I, I you know, the, the parts that I enjoyed was more around the communication or more around, you know, uh, perspective management, which is what Dr. Shrikant taught. And um, because I needed to do a summer project, I did get a like a you know traditional sort of corporate summer project with Wokar, um, where I really learned how doctors functioned and which interested me because it was about people. But what I also did was I volunteered with an organization called Yuba, which was working at that time with the Kumbhars, the potters in Dharavi, right? Mm -hmm. My parents were really unhappy that I was doing that. And the Institute, uh, because of Dr. Srikanth and because we also had another professor called Srinivas Rao, they sort of valued in some way what I was doing. And they pushed me to draw out insights from even that experience that I had. So I do have really good memories of SPJN. I also have memories of not wanting to do the campus placements, uh, which I didn't. I mm-hmm. didn't take up uh, placements. And then finally, um, I you know, took up a job with Rikaya Gray because it was advertising. They were known for their you know, for their amazing creativity. I worked in advertising for 10 years, loved it, enjoyed myself. There's some, you know, marquee moments for me even from from advertising. Again, you know, if if today, retrospectively, if I connect the dots um, and if you'll allow me, there's a little story from advertising, you know, that to me, seeded this whole concept of being able to influence without authority right Mm -hmm. which is really what i do today Mm -hmm. i have zero authority as Mm -hmm. a not-for-profit we we have zero like we have zero authority we have zero power right but we um are trying to bring about change for problems that are so massive in the country and i think the seeds for that in some way one was definitely spjn and the second. You remember the 1990... You won't remember it. You weren't born. But the <laughs> 1993 bomb blast that happened. Yeah. Um, and it shook Bombay City. Yeah. I was in... Um, at that time, I was in Trikaya Gray. And Mariko was one of our clients. So I was in their office in in Rangsharada. Those days, there were no mobile phones. So we used to have these pagers, you know. Um, um, the span, complete chaos finally managed to reach back home. Um, then I get a page in, in the night saying... Report to work at six six thirty a.m. the next day. Right, everything had stopped. Um, it was eerie. I had uh, I remember getting onto the train early in the morning from Andheri to come to Churchgate to my uh, to my workplace, and probably was the most inspiring day for me in my advertising career. Um, Mr. Ravi Gupta, who was the CEO of um, uh, Trikaya Grey at that time. Um, had spoken to Mr. Narottam area of Gujarat Ambuja Cements. Mr. area had um, you know, got off the aircraft. He landed in Bombay on the day of the blast. He saw what was happening over there. And he and Mr. Gupta together uh, said that they needed to do something. They needed to do something that went beyond a brand or marketing or advertising or communication, something to rally the city back on its feet. Because it had... I mean, there were the blasts, you know, at that time started at uh, the Air India building and went all the way. There were multiple serial blasts. Nobody knew what was happening. There was so much death, so much devastation, destruction. There was so much fear. Uh, Probably the only time the local trains were empty, you know, when I took that train that early morning to come to work. And overnight, Mr. Gupta and the team, all of us worked together. And there was this beautiful campaign called Salam Bombay that came out, which just saluted the spirit of Bombay. And it just, it was like a glue that brought the entire city together. It just showcased the goodness that was there in the city, which is so powerful. And I was, you know, I was sort of all of 22 years old, 23 years old at that time. And for a 23 year old, it was you know, it was just, it was an awakening. It sort of told me that there's something, you have your work and then you can go over and beyond what you can humanly do in your role, right? And that has stayed with me uh, till today. And I do believe the seeds of that were sown for me at SPJN in some way. And then there were little incidents like this, people like this who then kept adding, uh, adding to that. Um, to answer the second part of your question, Harvard, basically, we were the diversity candidates, right? As a not for profit leader, often we do get some of these amazing opportunities because we bring um, sometimes a perspective that's invisible to most of us who work in corporate India. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and my uh, my family is, is strange. Our dinner table conversations are often really heated. My husband's a banker, a dined in the wood capitalist, <laughs> uh, right? And then there's me. And then we have two daughters, um, one of whom is is on this side, one of whom is still deciding where she wants to be. And conversations are always interesting, is the word
0: that uh, I would that, use. That's a there. very interesting okay. dinner table conversation, a capitalist and a socialist in an audience of two. You know, very interesting. But the, the Salaam Bombay campaign is uh, what a beautiful story. What a what a beautiful story. Um, but. What I what I want to understand is, you know, with moments like these, with such a lovely career in advertising, what what pushed you to make the transition to you know NGO work? Um, was it something that was always there, or what drove you in that direction?
1: No, I don't think it was there. I, in fact, I I envisaged a career in advertising or marketing research, but that places that I liked and I liked my work. It wasn't premeditated. It was just an incident that um, you know that I was witness to. In the busy streets of Bombay, a witness of um, child abuse that shook me more as a mother. Um, I don't think I, it was just like a very sort of selfish reaction, and and this thought that if this had to happen to my children, I would have dragged that perpetrator to the cops and made sure that he was behind bars. But just because the the you know the victim or the child at the um, you know who was who was targeted was a child of the streets, there was just nobody. It just stayed with me. It kept me awake at night. It it wouldn't let me sleep. I kept thinking about it. My husband and I spoke. At that time, it was a very young family. My daughters were really young. We needed both incomes. But it really did bother me. And he said, why don't you just write to some organizations that work with children and see what happens. Um, So you know how corporates, you go and volunteer on your birthday, you go and cut a cake with um, either an orphanage or something like that. So the only organization that I knew of, I wrote into them. Um, you know, the founder of the organization today is probably one of my biggest uh, sources of inspiration and and one of my personal hero, uh, heroes. She wrote back immediately and that's how I entered this sector. So it wasn't thought through. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when I joined, uh, the organization that I joined was called the Akanksha Foundation at that time in 2001. Um, and at that time, I thought I'd probably do this, you know, prob- take almost looked at it as a sabbatical for a year and I'd go back to my corporate career. Um, and also, the understanding between my husband and I was just that, you know, if the finances become an issue, I'll just go right back. So right. that's how I entered the um, the sector way back in 2001. But that's it's a, been more than two decades now.
0: That's a really, really lovely story. So once you were in the NGO space, Um, how did you get to the point where you wanted to start antarang and i guess what's the mission with antarang
1: so at the akansha foundation where i joined it's a phenomenal organization it's still one of the leading organizations of the country that provides today it provides mainstream education when um, i was with akansha and i was leading akansha we did supplemental education right Mm -hmm. so Children would go to municipal schools during the day and then they would come to these centres mm-hmm. after school where they learnt English, math and what we called values at that time. There was a lot of investment that was made in every student that Akanksha had. You know, and once you're a teacher, you're always a teacher. Everyone in Akangstra taught. So the students that I taught slowly were coming to grade 10, grade 12. and The one big question constantly was, Didi, what next? Right, and despite that hand-holding... Um, I realized that that bridge from school to higher education to work was not there. It was just not there for young people like yourself and probably my own biological children. It's different because there's enough of role modeling around them. I don't think any of you would have ever thought that college was not a possibility, right? Like college was a given. Higher education was a given. Work was given. The fact that you would have upward mobility was a given. But it's not true, for, definitely not true for 70 million young people in the country and difficult for another 100 million in the country, mm-hmm. right? So and these are massive numbers that you're talking yeah. about. So in, I could see that this bridge was missing and because this bridge was missing, you could see that children were literally dropping through the cracks. Young people were literally dropping through the ca- cracks. If you look at the data today, just one in two of our young people actually finish high school And, you know, less than 25% of those who finish go on to higher education.
0: Wow. So, basically, you have 12.5% of all young children going on to higher education. Absolutely. That's an abysmal number. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, what
1: happens to the others? Right? In the case of boys, they often get into the exploitative informal economy. From where it's really hard to extricate them. Right? In the case of girls, more often than not, they become free labor at home. They're looking after their younger siblings or attending to domestic um, work, or in the case of, you know, close to 20 to 24% of them, they're getting married before the age of uh, 18. And about 2 to 3%, but 2 to 3%, remember, for a country of 235 million young people, is still a large, significant uh, number. They get into, you know, they get in conflict with law. So these were the, you know, the lived, my sort of experience, I won't say lived experience, but lived experience in some way because I was seeing it every time I would walk into a low-income population. You can see a number of boys doing nothing, like literally doing nothing. They're playing there or flying kites or, right? And in the case of girls, you can see them either washing vessels, washing clothes, looking after their younger siblings, right? I could see that and the data also showed me that there was a problem. Mm -hmm. The school-to-work transition was way too fractured and had way too many Mm breakpoints, right? And, you know, the question then that came to our mind was that can we not actually build this bridge Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. all young people can actually, you know, dream of careers of their choice? Why should this choice be just the prerogative of a few
0: in the country today? Absolutely.
1: That was how Antarang began.
0: And what's interesting to me, sitting maybe a little bit on the corporate side of things, is that I know, and I know from speaking to people, finding the right, you know, employees, finding the right labor is an immense challenge. Right. So there's challenges on both sides of this equation, and I think really huge credit to you guys for building that bridge. You know. So what was the first few years of this journey like? Um, I mean, as we know, there's always shifts and pivots and transitions. Um, did you guys start uh, how did you guys start out, and, and where did it pivot into?
1: That's an interesting question, right? So um, when we started off, it was a we looked at it as a problem to be solved and not a product or a model to be built, right? Let me explain the difference between sure. the two. The minute you're looking at it as a problem to be solved, Then you know that one, it needs to work at the scale. The solution needs to be at least at the scale of the problem or larger, right? Mm -hmm. If you want that problem to be solved. So, like I said, we're talking about a minimum of 70 million young people who are at or below the poverty line, who are at risk of dropping out, right? Mm -hmm. So, it needed to be a solution that could solve the problem at that scale. That was number one. Second, it also needed to have an exit mechanism built in, right? Ideally, the success of Antarang is the day we go out of work, right? Which means that the problem has been solved and we, we don't have any more work to do in that space. So those were two, in some ways, guiding factors for us when we started work. So we asked ourselves, where, where are the most marginalized, where are the most vulnerable young people today? Um, interestingly, we started off with two sections of the population, one of whom we continue to work with, but one where the challenges were way way too huge, and we said maybe we were not ready at that time, and perhaps we are a little bit more ready today, and we may look at it right. One was the section of young people who were either in need of care and protection, you know, the juvenile justice system today calls them children in need of care and protection, CNCP, um, or children in conflict with law, which means children who were institutionalized, right? Mm -hmm. So young people who were institutionalized. So that was one uh, target audience that we started with. And second, Maharashtra is the only state in the country that has a very vibrant night school system. Mm -hmm. So young people who work during the day, they go to schools in the night. and These night schools work from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. every day. Um, And we have like... you know, over in, in Mumbai city alone, there are over 150 of these night schools. So we started work there mm-hmm. with a program that uh, helped the ninth and 10th graders really explore various career opportunities that were available to them. And we developed a very simple sort of algorithm that says that, look at your interest, look at your aptitude, look at your reality, right? Look at all the opportunities that are available there and match the two and you have a career plan. We sort of demystified career counselling and broke it down almost like a math problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. And we got the students themselves to engage with all of this and sort of solve this equation for themselves. So the thrill of, for this young person to arrive at a career plan and then realise that, hey, this is possible. You know, really sort of opening this world of possibility for them just made sure that they, were, they stayed compliant mm-hmm. to that entire process. Mm-hmm. And then we saw success early on where a lot of young people actually moved into career opportunities that they wouldn't have dreamt of. You know, from being, say, a barista in a cafe coffee day, you'd have young people getting into wealth management with, you know, organizations like Edelweiss. And like some of you, we do have, today we have alumni working with J.P. Morgan and Edelweiss and, you know, pretty much every wow. HDFC bank. Um, in the financial services sector to fitness and to there are filmmakers the head of to, post-production at z studios is an so wow they're doing really really amazing, that's amazing things today
0: that's really really amazing i do remember this is a, a personal side of it, i do remember that when i was working with you guys very briefly i don't think it was more than a month but you guys are still working in putting kids in like cafe coffee day and service jobs and to see you guys go from there to like head of post-production at Zee, that's amazing. That's amazing, amazing story. Um, really warms the heart. So another thing that we spoke about off camera that I, I really, I wanna try and bring this story is about building trust with these kids, um, where you spoke about the challenges in your approach to building trust with them. So do you wanna maybe talk about that a little bit? Because it's a very interesting sure. story.
1: Yeah. So I'll come to the challenges. I'm sorry that you know I, sure, I didn't sure. quite answer that part of your question, right? There were a lot of challenges. Firstly, I think the challenge was um, in in some ways, shifting the frame in the country at that time and in some ways even today, right? Let's remember that India is a country of hierarchies, right? Yes. Um, young people who are not so well off, who are less privileged, more often than not go to um, government schools, where more often than not, the only options that are presented to them are fairly stereotypical vocational careers, mm-hmm. right? Um, whereas, you know, young people like yourself go on to the best schools and then, you know, literally the world is your oyster, mm-hmm. right? So this was a hierarchy that's that's there. So when here we were two, at that time, two or three of us who were representing the organization, none of us were sociologists or economists or even development economists or educationists. But here we were going and saying that we want to break this hierarchy and we want to basically democratize the school-to-work transition. We want to democratize career choice, right? It just sounded extremely utopian and idealistic and impossible at that time. So it was really hard to get anyone to fund us and it was also very hard for the school system to accept us. And we wanted to work only with the government school system, right? Mm-hmm. Because the intent was not to create anything parallel. The intent was to change the system itself to be a lot more, um, to provide a lot more access and opportunity to young people. And honestly, it's been a pleasure to work with states so mm-hmm. far, right? So it's, it's been a pleasure to work with state governments and the bureaucracy because they do want young people to succeed. They do want the school system, the public school system to work. And they do want the public school system to deliver to this promise of a vibrant and growing India.
0: That's a very heartwarming thing to know. Because on the, you know, sitting on our side when you don't really know much, you often think of bureaucracy, government. They don't care. But it's it's really lovely to know. But please continue.
1: So, and when but to give them the other side of what can be, it involved building small pilots that work, going in there, showcasing results. Um, really having school heads you know uh, advocating for us having students and their parents advocating for us till the you know the state the government officials realized that here was a model that could work at scale that could work through the school system and that would work not as an organization trying to make a name for uh, themselves but More to ensure that the system functioned well. Mm -hmm. So even today, we fly under the radar. I mean, chances are that if you go and ask a student whether they know about Antarang, they may not. Because we go in there as an extension of the school system. And we just do this work of, you know, integrating careers as part of high school education. Today, careers, career awareness and career readiness is part of 9th, 10th, 11th and 12th timetable itself in all of these government schools in 25 districts, in the 25 districts that we're working in.
0: Wow. So, I guess I have another long 2 part question for you. Um, What was the journey like going from, you know, the pilot projects that you mentioned with a few schools in a few districts to a thousand schools across 25 districts? And what was that organization-building journey along with that? Because I know and I'm sure that along with reaching all those people, you have to build the Antara organization to deliver. So, what was those... What was that journey like?
1: Um, interesting, challenging, but lots of you know, lots of highs that kept us going. Right? Um, when you when you're scaling, you're not just scaling a solution, but it, you're scaling a mindset. Mm-hmm. The mindset that talks about scale. Um, is a very different mindset to say that here here I am working with a few thousand students. When you're working with a few thousand students to working with 100,000 or 200,000 students, which is, I mean, this year alone, we'll be working with another 230,000 students. So it's like scaling very, very rapidly. Mm -hmm. Um, It meant, I would say, three big things, right? One, really sort of understanding the different competencies that needed to get supplemented Mm -hmm. with the organization. The organization always had an invested and strong team. You've met Mm -hmm. several of them. Um, And the organization also consciously, we've kept the team, the average age of the team really, really young because we work with young adults and we wanted to ensure that, you know, the relevance was there. So despite me and a couple of us who are, you know, I would say northwards of uh, 50, most of the team is under 30. Mm-hmm. right so there's a high level of relevance so how do you get this young motivated ambitious set of people really to think large and think scale and think systems change uh, was a journey but i think what really helped was keeping the why and the purpose very very clear even today if you ask anyone at antarang whether an intern or whether you know the any of the directors they would probably, hopefully, give you the same answer to why we're doing the work that we are doing and what is the change that they want to see, mm-hmm. right? And what is the changed India that we will see because of the work that we're doing? Mm-hmm. So really sort of focusing on that why, keeping that purpose and reason alive and saying that, okay, every young adult productively, passionately, positively in a career of choice, that became the anchor. Mm -hmm. So however large we grew, we sort of came back to ensuring that we never lose sight of that individual child, Mm -hmm. right, an individual student in a classroom. So while we scaled, the unit for us was always a classroom Mm -hmm. and we just kept scaling that classroom unit. Mm -hmm. So the classroom, one career facilitator to a classroom remained the core of the work that we did. Mm Uh, And that sort of guided a lot of how we look at quality and scale today. Mm -hmm. That unit is never. So it's like, you know, when you you know what your unit is and what that unit level success looks like, however large you become, you always question your success based on those unit level metrics. Mm -hmm. Right. So. That was something that we um, managed to do even through this uh, entire process. Of course, board and governance was something that we built as we went along the way. We've been extremely lucky to have sort of um, you know donors and investors who believed Mm -hmm. in the cause, have stayed the course. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've not been people who sort of funded us for a year and um, went out. They're all you know donors and investors who've been with us for five to six years. Have have been huge cheerleaders of our scale journey as well.
0: Well, That's a really, really lovely story. And I think one thing that I definitely, I've taken away from that is that I personally don't think I do a good enough job of explaining the why of Pesa Smart. And I think, you know, from what you're saying, that's something I definitely want to do a little bit better. But I want to maybe look into the future a little bit. So you've you've gone from a few thousand students to 200,000 students But we know the size of the problem is 70 million underprivileged children across a number of different standards. So what does the future of Antarang look like? How do you go from 200,000 to a million to 5 million, 10 million, whatever it is that you want to take it?
1: So like I said earlier as well, we're here to solve the problem, right? So if we ensure that we bring down, we increase the number of young people actually moving from school, high school on to either higher education, technical education or you know work of their choice then we know we've done our job. So for us what today the ILO in the uh, late 19 uh, early 2000s actually um, promulgated this metric of NEET right that is young people who are not in education employment or training. What Antarang has done is added another E to it given the Indian context entrepreneurship. So we want to ensure that The the number of young people who are not in education, employment, entrepreneurship or training is as close to a zero as possible. If every young person in the country today is productively engaged, then we know we've done our job, Mm -hmm. right? And how are we going about doing this by integrating career awareness and career readiness as part of high school curriculum, Mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's as much a subject in high school teaching young people how to make these career decisions for themselves because it's not a one time decision you're constantly going to be going to have to navigate the many changes in your career throughout your life mm-hmm. but if we inculcate this the how of taking a career decision yes right how do you do that research yes. and how do you sort of arrive at a decision how do you continue to upskill yourself how do you be lifelong learners then we know that we've done our job So that's what we're looking at, sort of integrating this into the school system across the country and ensuring that those neat numbers come down to as close to a zero as possible. Right? Today, it's at a 30% for India. 30%? 30% of India's youth are completely unproductive. They're not in education, employment or training. Wow, 30? I did not think it
0: would be 30%.
1: It's a very, very high number, right?
0: So we need to...
1: We need to. I mean, it's it's an urgent issue. It's an
0: absolute issue because, you know, from from the economists and when we look at the markets, the thing that people talk about a lot is India's demographic dividend. Demographic dividend, huge young populace. But if thirty percent are not in anything, then then there is no dividend.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And it's a. And it's urgent because suddenly they'll all be thirty plus, and they're no longer young, yeah, and yeah, you've lost yeah. a generation, right? Yeah. So you need to intervene as quickly as possible.
0: No, I, and I, uh, I truly hope that you know you guys can get to as many people as soon as possible. But um, I guess for myself and, and all the viewers that are watching, um, how how can they get involved? How can how can we do something to help Antarang? What what are the channels and what are the ways that we can support you guys
1: that's a great question right so the the first thing is i think being really alive to this problem um simple things like when we're hiring are we genuinely hiring for diversity Mm -hmm. today we hire basis qualifications basis formal you know like sort of pedigree Mm -hmm. can you actually break that down and really i start looking at those below the iceberg competencies Mm -hmm. that a lot of young people can come with, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of intentionally hiring in a a diverse manner, Mm -hmm. right? Second, India has fantastic policies on paper. The National Apprenticeship Policy, for example, talks about every organization, every unit, whether, you know, it's your firm, Varun, hiring apprentices, that is hiring young people in the 16 to 18 age group, giving them projects to do, letting them learn on the job, Right. Most of us um, view it as an additional chore. When you have like a young person hanging around an office, you don't know what to give them,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: But imagine how empowering it would be, say for an 11th grader or a 12th grader to actually come after school for a couple of hours every day to your organization and learn on the job. And whatever it is that they will learn, it's you are one for you as a business unit, you're actually building a potential workforce at literally no cost, mm-hmm. Right the only cost that you'll have is developing this person. Developing this person is an investment that you're making in building diversity. So I would say to really open your organization to interns and apprentices and build this pipeline of future employees for yourself, right? That's the second thing that I would say anyone who's watching, open your
0: doors. um, I think I'm going to try and do that because we've had a, I personally had a policy of not hiring people under 21 because I find it very difficult to train them. But... I guess I can see from what you're saying. I think I'll try it out. I'll try it out. I'll give it a go.
1: That'll that'll be great. The third is just advocating for career awareness and career readiness as a first step before skilling. You -hmm. know, today we're investing 2,000 crores year on year as a country in skill building, which is great and we should do it because, you know, Mm -hmm. employable skills are really important. But imagine this 18-year-old, he or she is standing at the crossroads and saying that there are 500 options open for me. Mm -hmm. How do I decide which is the best fit, right? So really sort of inculcating this career thinking, much like financial literacy, right? How do you sort of inculcate this early on in life? How do you inculcate an aspiration in young people early on in life? Like really, really sort of advocating for it, becoming mentors to young people. Definitely that's something that you know, that would hugely uh, build this ecosystem. Finally, CSR today, everyone has to invest, you know, companies of a certain size, 2% of CSR needs to get invested. This space needs more investment Mm -hmm. because we will be losing this demographic dividend if we don't invest in our young people today. So I would say that, you know, if you have the ability to influence your CSR spends of your company, look at this, the school to work transition, secondary education, Um, how young people are making those transitions to, you know, higher education and onwards. Important investments to
0: make. Absolutely. And, uh, no, I I think... I think it's a really pertinent point you've made that I think we should all try and do something to make this... uh, to realize this demographic dividend. And I think for my part and Paisa Smart's part, I think we're going to look at trying to implement some of what you've discussed. Super, yeah. And uh, I guess... Any, any closing thoughts uh, that you'd maybe like to share with the audience or um, yeah, any, anything that you'd like to say?
1: Yeah, I, I think I'll probably pick on something that you mentioned in your opening about you know the massive growth that India is seeing, right? Yeah. I want to just bring a little you know small sort of footnote to that. It needs to be that growth needs to be inclusive, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Who is this progress? today who is really benefiting from this progress can we ensure that this 70 million that I spoke about a majority of them are probably living on less than 250 rupees a day today mm-hmm. right not something that you can really live on how do you make that progress really really equitable mm-hmm. right um, you know some of the some of which that I already spoke about right making sure that industry is also investing in building this dividend to to work for for everybody mm-hmm. i mean you know every young person who's earning today is going to contribute to gdp today consumption ex- the expenditures that you know is is the biggest driver, contributor yeah. to the yeah. to gdp so if you're if they're not able to consume your gdp is not going to go up so really sort of look at investing in young people is is what i would uh, sort of leave your audience and uh, all of you with
0: Absolutely. I think it's a really lovely message and thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story and and sharing your thoughts. It's been incredibly informative uh, and, and I, I've personally learned a lot. I'm sure our viewers have learned a lot as well. Um, and I think on that note, I will probably close the podcast. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, you've left us a lot to think about and, and some really pertinent ideas and thoughts. And uh, I will do my level best to carry through and I'm sure a lot of our audience will as well.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Varun, for
0: having me. This podcast is produced by Elixir Equities Private Limited, a semi registered research analyst. Registration number INA 00004787. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Investment in securities market are subject to market risk. We strongly advise all investors to read all related documents carefully before investing.